I don't know about you, but uh, I think a copier is like a great piece of equipment. And they've come a long way through the years. I mean, the, the quality and capabilities, it's an intricate part of business today. And one of the features I like is the reduced document feature, you know, where you can take and fit a, a page. You know, you can just kind of zoom out and reduce it down to, to fit the page. And uh, it's a pretty handy feature. It's a handy feature on the computer. And I, I want to make a statement that is going to rattle you a little bit. And that is, I think a lot of people take God, take the concept of God, and they put it on a copier, and they zoom out, and they reduce God. And if I was honest, I have to admit, I have been more of a participant in that than a casual observer in my life. That, uh, you know, there have been times where I've kind of confined God to this little box called the church. You know, that God's kind of a manageable size. You know, it's kind of like you set him up on the mantle of the fireplace, and they go, that's God. I've done that, and you've done that. And people have been doing that since the beginning of time. And today what I want to do is look at a group of people, a large group of people, in fact, an entire nation, that was into reducing God. And after they reduced God, they paid a very, very high price for that. We're in this series, Motown. We've been looking through the book of Exodus. I hope you've been reading that, that book, uh, kind of tracking with Moses and the Israelites. And Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And God called Moses to lead the people of, of Israel. And through a series of supernatural events, the, the ten plagues, uh, finally Pharaoh lets the Hebrew people go. Shortly after they had been freed, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, they found themselves totally surrounded. And God ends up parting the seas so that the people can walk through on dry land. It's amazing victory. And you would think, as they've seen all these supernatural things, that their concept of God would be vast, that their image of God would be big, and that their love for God would be huge, off the charts. Last week, we, we left off that the Israelites are at, at a camp. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses had ascended to the top to meet with God, and God had just laid down the law and given Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a time perspective because Moses, when he ascended, he's now been gone for six weeks almost. The Israelites have time on their hands. I kind of picture them sitting around. They got their pup tents and, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out what they're doing and they're waiting. They're waiting on Moses to come back. They're waiting for Moses to come back and lead them to the promised land. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And they don't wait well. Anybody like that? How are you at waiting? <laughs> I mean, human, human nature is we do not like to wait. I think I've said before, I, I can't ever figure out when I'm at a restaurant. Anybody like waiting at restaurants? 
I mean, I've never figured out while I'm sitting there waiting, what doesn't make sense to me is the people that work there that are very busy are called waiters. I'm hungry, I'm waiting, they're called waiters. Doesn't make sense, but anyway, so I'm waiting and waiting in my life, and I don't do well with that. Waiting. Do you? I mean, do you like waiting in lines? Do you like wait, waiting in a traffic jam? I mean, the fact is, if you look at life, you spend a large amount of time just waiting. I want to suggest to you in the majors of life that God uses that time. I mean, we think we are waiting, that we're just spinning our wheels. But the fact is, God is working in our lives and testing our faith when we're waiting. I mean, after Israel had been freed from Egypt, they can't hardly wait to get to the promised land. And we talked about this when we started the series, that the trip should have taken about a month, but it took them 40 years. I mean, why did it take so long? You know, Deuteronomy 8.2 says, God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to test you in order to know what? What was in your heart? What was God doing? He's testing, he's testing the heart. I mean, I don't know where you're at today, but do you ever get in a situation in your life where you feel like you're in a hurry, but God definitely isn't? I mean, that makes me want to ask the when question. You know, when is my marriage going to turn around? You know, when... Am I going to meet the right person? When will I get well? When will we have a baby? When will I find the right job? When? I mean, that question, that's a tough one. If you're waiting today, can I suggest maybe, maybe, maybe it's a test. Maybe it's a test. Isaiah writes this. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You may not see it, but if you're waiting in faith, God is working, God is working. When I'm waiting, sometimes I want to scream. I'm, if you, those that know me well, I'm impatient. I'm impatient, you know, and I know sometimes when we're waiting, it's like, hello, hello, are you paying attention? Where did our love go? Come on now. Can you get to work? Do you care? Do you care what's going on? Or when you wait, is it more like, I know you love me, God. I know you know what's best for me. And I'm trusting you. Where are you at? Where are you at when it comes to waiting? Because, friends, if you're really going to grow in your faith, God's not going to answer your prayers like that. It's not boom, boom, instant, instant answer to, to your prayers. It just doesn't work that way. In fact, I would argue if you want to evaluate your faith, if you want to evaluate your trust, your love for God, answer this for, for yourself. How well do you wait? I mean, do you give up after a few moments, a few weeks, a few months? You know, do you, do you grumble and complain while you're waiting? You know, do you question God's love? Or do you live expectantly in life? 
The Israelites, they've been waiting. They've been waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. And you need to remember, they have been slaves for generations, 400 years. Slavery is all they've ever known. They're fired up. They're finally free. They're excited. They are finally leaving Egypt, heading to the promised land that they have known their entire existence, been waiting for that moment. Now they're at the base of Mount Sinai, and they had to wait six weeks because Moses is, who knows what he's doing. But he's been gone, and they're waiting. And they do something really amazing. You're going to find this hard to believe. They begin complaining. <laughs> it says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, I love this, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. It's kind of funny. I mean, when I'm reading it, I'm thinking, where did their love go? Where did their love go? They're they're so quick to dismiss everything. And I can only imagine the stories that must have been circulating around the camps. You know, I bet Moses is bolted. Well, I heard that he climbed to the top and he climbed down the other side and he is relaxing in Egypt right now. That's what I heard. Maybe, maybe he, the climb was too strenuous for him. I mean, he didn't have the proper gear, you know. I mean, he may have died of exposure. Oh, I bet an animal, wild animal got him, maybe a king cobra or something. Hey, do you believe in aliens? I mean, things have been strange around here lately. We're bored. We're bored. We're, we're tired of waiting. We're tired of waiting for God. We're tired of waiting for Moses. And I understand their impatience. I even understand that they began to imagine the worst. But here's what I can't comprehend. I mean, their request is off the chain. We want some other gods. Whoa. Are you kidding me? I mean, I want to go, where did your love go? Where did your love go here? After all God's done, after all you've seen, and it wasn't like it was way, way back, all they had seen in the last few months, and they go, want some other gods. Now, you would have thought that Aaron, after he kind of recovered from shock, would have said, folks, where did our love go here? I mean, remember? Remember God? The God that that raised Moses up? The God that performed all those plagues? You remember all the plagues, don't you? The God that, well, it was just a few weeks ago. You all thought we were going to die. And God parted the water. Folks, I'm sure Moses will be back. Let's just wait a little while longer. Again, that's what I expect Aaron to do. But no, Aaron asks the people, he says, give me all your jewelry, your rings, your necklaces, your earrings. And and so they bring them to him. Scripture says this, he took what they had handed him and made it into an idol, cast it in the shape of a calf, 
fashioned it with a tool. Then he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Wow. I'm not sure what Aaron was thinking. He was the priest. And now, some theologians have suggested here that what's going on is Aaron's like, well, this isn't a big deal. This merely represents God. And in that day, uh, a calf or a bull, it communicated strength and, and power. And so Aaron and the Israelites, as you do a careful reading of this, are kind of saying, God's strong. A bull represents strength. Therefore, the bull that they created, or the calf, was to be a representation of the power of God, and that they start worshiping this calf. Now, what I find amazing is, while all this is going on, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And they are breaking at least the second commandment and and probably uh, another commandment as well. You know, Exodus 20 says says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. I mean, why did God say that? Why did God ban idols? I mean, first of all, I think God knew that if we tried to shape anything, even if it was to reflect him, that automatically it reduces God. It limits our understanding of God. You know, whatever we create, it's just a fraction of who God really is. And again, after carefully reading the story, I think, and I'm going to assume, that Aaron, Aaron was merely trying to create an image that reflected who God is. So Aaron's like, God's powerful, calf represents power, I'll make a calf to represent God. Now, here, here's the problem I have. Even if you can get past the, the calf image, you know, and you see it only as a, a representation of power, it only reflects a little piece of who God is. The image doesn't express God's love or God's grace or God's forgiveness or God's mercy. It just communicates power. And that's why God laid down the second commandment because he knew that if we tried to create images that it would reduce him, that it would reduce God to uh, the single thing, whatever it is. The Israelites, at the very least, reduced God that day. And they paid the consequences, and they were pretty high. Now, I can tell just by kind of watching you here, some of you are going, okay, Damon, this is interesting, but what's it got to do with me? I mean, this is 2009. I read the paper. I watch the news. This absolutely has nothing to do with me. It doesn't connect. You know, I've never been with someone and thought, you know, I'm bored. Hey, let's get our jewelry, melt it down, and and let's make something and worship it. So if you don't mind, Damon, I'll check out today if that's okay. Well, stay with me. 
Because I think it does speak where we are today. And it gets, we get dangerously close in our lives to mimicking the Israelites, to creating modern-day idols that, that reduce God. You know, back to the second commandment. Why did God give us the commandment, don't make an idol? Again, because God knew that men and women, there would be something in us that we would want something tangible. We'd want something we could see, that we could grasp, that every other religion, they have statues and pictures and poles and all all these types of things. And God knew. God knew it would be a temptation. And God also knew that whatever we shaped, it would reduce it. It'd fall way short. Just curious, how many of you have ever been to Mount Rushmore? Let me see hands. Okay, quite a, quite a few, quite a few. So, hey, uh, can I get someone volunteer for me? I won't, I won't embarrass you, seriously. Someone that's been to Mount Rushmore, let me see a hand. All right, Janice, come here. I might embarrass her. <laughs> I want you to take, that's Plato, and you've been to Mount Rushmore. I've never been. Well, you can think about it. Who's on Mount Rushmore? Let's help her a little bit. Who, who are the faces? A little trivia here. George Washington? Lincoln? Roosevelt? Which one? Teddy? All right. One more. Thomas Jefferson. All right. All right, so those of you that have been there, track with me a little bit here. All right, you've been there, I've not. (laughs) I want you to take that Play-Doh and just make it for me. Yeah, 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 because I I want to take in all the splendor of Mount Rushmore. And uh, you're really going to do this for me, aren't you? Wow. (laughs) We'll wait. (laughs) Yeah. All right. You you don't have to do that. I know what's going through her mind. She's going, Damon, you are officially crazy. Yeah. There is no way you can communicate how grand Mount Rushmore is. You just got to be there. In fact, the Play-Doh is a just, it's a poor substitute. You can play with it if the message gets boring, all right? (laughs) Well, that's pretty good. (laughs) She actually got a face on there, so. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Janice. Friends, that's what God's saying too. There is nothing you can make, nothing you can mold, nothing you can shape that will come close to my essence. It's about as ridiculous. It's like, okay, did a nice job, but not doesn't get there, does it? I mean, one of the problems with images... And I'm going to try and be very, very careful because this is kind of like a minefield. But I think, although we mean well, images reduce God. 
images, although they may be three-dimensional, what they stand for becomes very one-dimensional, and our God is multi-dimensional. And so I want to talk about some of them. One of them is our visual, religious images that we have. Uh, Probably some of you have them on right now. A cross, a crucifix, a dove, uh, and relax. It's okay if you got it on, okay? In fact, I had to laugh. God, God is funny. I had a guy catch me just before service started up, and he hands me this. He goes, here, I want you to have this. And it was a cross. All my years in ministry, I've never had anybody give me a, a piece of jewelry with uh, a cross or any religious emblem on I said, oh, God, you're funny. Because I was like, "Uh, maybe I ought to wear one. But anyway, it's okay. You know, I think the image that it stands for, although it's good, it still doesn't quite express God. A while back, I was talking to a cashier in in the store, and uh, she had on this beautiful, I mean, just gorgeous brooch of the crucifix. And we got talking, and uh, I was asking her about it. And she was telling me she got it in the Holy Land. And it was just, it was a great image. And uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross, his head's down, probably moments before death. And I know, for many of you, when you see that, it means a lot to you. And when I see a, a crucifix, I immediately think about how eternally grateful I am to God that he sent Jesus Christ to die for me. But frankly... A crucifix is reductionary. It reduces God. And I know some of you are going, wait a minute now, wait a minute. A crucifix, give the crucifix a break. I mean, it can't communicate everything about God. And that's my point. That's my point. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it communicates the, the death of Christ or the cross without, it communicates, you know, if you had a, uh, the dove, the Holy Spirit, but it's one dimensional, the fact is an image is just that. It can't communicate everything. It comes up short. It's a very limited perspective. It can't communicate totally who God or Jesus Christ is. The Israelites, they go, we need an image so we can connect with God. We need an image so we don't feel alone. We need an image so that we know that God is there You know, James writes, he says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. In other words, God says, you don't need an image to connect with me. Just reach out and I'm I'm there. You know, John writes, says, worship me in spirit and truth, God says. God says, come to me as you are where you are. You know, whether you're in the office or you're traveling in your car or you're at the gym working out or you're sitting in class at school or you're at church, God says, you know what, you can come boldly into my presence because of Jesus Christ. You don't need anything. You don't need anyone. You can just come. You can meet me anytime, anywhere. Not the reduced God, but the real deal God. Again, please understand me. I'm not saying I've got a problem with crucifixes and crosses and doves and all that. That that is not my point. My point is merely that it's one-dimensional, what it communicates. It is a reduction of the real deal, the real God. You know, it's just a small, small piece. 
Here's another area. How about the mental images? Just as we, we talked about the visual images reduce God, well, I want to suggest to you that the, the mental images reduce God. Again, second commandment, and again, this is about reducing God as we understand God. Several years ago, Cindy and I uh, took a vacation, and the last day of our vacation, we're loading the car up to leave, and we kind of looked at each other, and we're like, we haven't taken any pictures. (laughs) This is true. And so we uh, set the camera up on the car, and we took one picture of us outside the condo. And that was our vacation picture. And uh, now, we didn't do what I'm about to tell you. But can you imagine? We're talking about our vacation with someone. And uh, say, oh, wait a minute. Let me go get I've got a picture. And so I go get my vacation album, and they go, oh, let me see. And so I show them the one picture. I go, that's our vacation. They'd be like, okay, do you have some more pictures? No, that's it, that's our vacation. And they'd be like, okay, that's odd, that's incomplete. And now, if I was on the other end of that, I would not be complaining. Seriously. I mean, sometimes when people are talking to me about vacation or whatever, and they go to get the photo album, seriously, I want to run and hide. You know, they're gone, they're gone for like a, a week, and they've got an album for every day. You know, hundreds and hundreds of pictures. You can relive the entire vacation with them. They're like, this is us packing to go on our vacation. This is me fixing breakfast the first morning. Here we are at the store buying suntan lotion. Here's the kids wearing the suntan lotion. You know, and I'm like, Full chronicle. Picture documentary. 20 years from now, they will be able to relive their vacation. Remember that? Oh, that was fun. You know, tremendous memories. Well, friends, we've all got what I'll say are photographic, spiritual photographic albums, you know, and it's packed with pictures of God, different images of God, and the Bible is full of images, you know, and those are the best images, but sometimes we have images that uh, people have given us, and they're very limited, you know, they... A lot of people I know operate with one picture of God. One picture that somebody gave them like 20 years ago that just reduces God. And not only is that problematic, but sometimes the picture's just wrong. It's just wrong. I mean, sometimes I'm talking to people and I'll go, well, what's your understanding of God? And it's like, well, God's like a policeman. You know, and he's watching everything that you do, and he's waiting. He is waiting for you to do something wrong so he can bust you. That's not God. You know, other people are like, well, God's like a judge. You know, he's impersonal, and he's legalistic, and he pounds a gavel a lot, and he goes, guilty, 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 guilty. All kinds of images people carry around with them. 
Sometimes they're images we've created. Again, sometimes they're images people have given to us. But friends, when you look at that image, it just reduces God, distorts God. You know, here's one that I I think is just dangerous, and a lot of people carry this one. God's like a grandpa. Oh, God doesn't care what you do. I mean, God, God wouldn't deny me heaven. You know, when all's said and done, God's going to pat me on the head and go, oh, don't worry about it. You ignored me your whole life. You, you lived this life of rebellion. You hurt everybody in your wake. But come on in. It's cool. I'm grandpa. And friends, that, that one, eternal reality is there. You need biblical images of God. A God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of righteousness, a God of judgment, a God of love, a God of mercy. I mean, there are all kinds of images, and we need all of those. My point with the policeman and the judge and the grandpa is that many times, not only are our images inaccurate, and incomplete, but sometimes they're just off the chart wrong. You know, I'd challenge you to expand those images, to study the, the qualities of God that are found in Scripture, to, to begin to expand your portfolio. You know, again, Scripture's full of images, descriptions of God. You know, God is a loving father. God is a, a nursing mother. God is a good shepherd. God is a mighty fortress, a shield, redeemer, defender. You know, a God that creates, sustains, healer, deliverer, comforter. And then, friends, I could go on and on and on. But I need all of those. Again, my point, refuse to reduce God. You need hundreds of images of God to begin to even try and grasp who God is. There's one more way I think we reduce God, and that is what I call create a God. And that is we pick and choose what we want in our God. We, you know, we read scripture, or we hear a message, and we pick and choose. You know, oh, I like that pick of God. That fits really well. Mmm. I think I'll delete that picture. It doesn't really work for me. You know, you read a a scripture like uh, Micah 7 that is a picture of God throwing our sins in the depths of the sea. And people go, that is a great image. I'll add that to the album. That fits really well. But then you read about, like, the consequences of sin, and people go, uh, I don't know, I don't like that one. This needs some serious airbrushing. Reduce. Oh, this one just needs to go. Reduce. And before you know it, friends, you have seriously reduced God into an image that you created. Maybe not a golden calf, but it's an image just the same. And it's kind of this, hey, check this out. This is the God I created. Whoa, sweet. Don't reduce. Don't reduce. You know, Israel, they're waiting on Moses. And again, you you would think when they ask Aaron to to make them a god, that Aaron would have said, I'm not going to do that. 
I am not going there. But instead, he says, okay, give me your jewelry. Let's see what we can do. And he makes an image, and he makes this calf. You read the story, chapter 32. You'll have to read it because I'm not going to go through all of it. But God realizes that the Israelites have created this image. God's with Moses at that moment. And God immediately realizes that they're worshiping this image that's a reduction of him. And he says, Moses, go deal with them. And things get pretty dramatic. Moses, he's carrying the tablets, you know, the Ten Commandments and are on these, and he's carrying them down the, the mountain. And he gets down to the base camp, and the Israelites are worshiping and dancing. And Moses just loses it, and he throws the commandments, busts them into pieces. And the, the whole situation, I mean, it costs Israel dearly. It's just sad. It's just sad. Here's my challenge for you this morning. Instead of reducing God, I challenge you to expand your God, to expand that that photo album in, in your life. You know, when you're having devotions, you know, when you're studying the Bible, when you're when you're reading a Christian book, or you're in small group, or you're in a service like this, to to be listening up to be watching for those images of God and to take those pictures and put them in your album and just keep adding them one after another, after another, after another. And instead of God getting reduced, what you find is God gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, my intent is not to beat us up, okay? It's not to make you feel awful for things that you've done to reduce God. That is not my intent. What I'm wanting us to understand is what we're missing. That there's a better way to realize how wonderful God is, how big God is. And when you embrace the true God, that your relationship with God can begin to grow. That you can experience the best that life has. That all of a sudden, every movement in your life, God's in the middle of it. He's always in the picture. And here's the amazing thing to me. As hard as it is to get my mind around who God is, when I realize how big, how awesome God is, this is what blows my mind. I realize how small I am. And God, this gigantic God, knows who I am, knows who you are, knows what's going on in your life, cares about it, wants to help you, wants to help you with your struggles and your pain and your stuff that is messing you up, that God is for you in your life. I mean, I love David's words. He writes in the Psalms, he says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, What are human beings that you're mindful of them? It's like, it is off the charts that you are paying attention to me, to you.
Friends, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I get to know God. And the closer I get to God, he just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's how God's supposed to be. Pretty soon he's so big, he can't can't get your mind around it. If you got God in a nice little box right now, I'd challenge you to unbox him. I mean, first of all, you don't really have God boxed up, but you're missing. You're missing the God that's outside that box. Does that make sense? God is bigger than whatever it is you bring today. God is bigger than what's going on in your life. God is bigger than what you think. Don't reduce, don't reduce, don't reduce. Let's stand in a word of prayer. Our holy God, we stand in awe of who you are. God, I've spent most of my life trying to get my mind around how big you are. Every time I think I've figured it out, I realize it's even bigger. God, I pray that we'd never reduce you. Forgive us the times we have. God, we praise you. That as big as you are, as vast as this world is, you realize every little thing that's going on in our lives. God, I praise you. I thank you for that. I thank you for that tremendous attention to our details. We give you the praise and the glory this day. Amen.